Welcome to the Ardent Archives, a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. During this series, we are reading and discussing On the Incarnation by Athanasius of Alexandria. In this small volume, Athanasius expounds on the truths of Christ's incarnation with great precision and clarity. Written in the 4th century AD, there have been few works since that time that have come close to being as rich and concise in their explanation of this vital doctrine. So sit back and prepare to have your heart and mind engaged as we dive into On the Incarnation by Athanasius of Alexandria. Chapter 7, Refutation of the Gentiles. We come now to the unbelief of the Gentiles, and this is indeed a matter for complete astonishment. For they laugh at that which is no fit subject for mockery, yet fail to see the shame and ridiculousness of their own idols. But the arguments on our side do not lack weight, so we will confute them too on reasonable grounds chiefly from what we ourselves also see. First of all, what is there in our belief that is unfitting or ridiculous? Is it only that we say that the Word has been manifested in a body? Well, if they themselves really love the truth, they will agree with us that this involves no unfittingness at all. If they deny that there is a Word of God at all, that will be extraordinary. For then they will be ridiculing what they do not know. But suppose they confess that there is a word of God, that he is the governor of all things, that in him the Father wrought the creation, that by his providence the whole receives light and life and being, and that he is king over all, so that he is known by means of the works of his providence, and through him the Father. Suppose they confess all this, what then? Are they not unknowingly turning the ridicule against themselves? The Greek philosophers say that the universe is a great body, and they say truly, for we perceive the universe and its parts with our senses. But if the word of God is in the universe, which is a body, and has entered into it in its every part, What is there surprising or unfitting in our saying that he has entered also into human nature? If it were unfitting for him to have embodied himself at all, then it would be unfitting for him to have entered into the universe and to be giving light and movement by his providence to all things in it, because the universe, as we have seen, is itself a body. But if it is right and fitting for him to enter into the universe and to reveal himself through it, then, because humanity is part of the universe along with the rest, it is no less fitting for him to appear in a human body and to enlighten and to work through that. And surely, if it were wrong for a part of the universe to have been used to reveal his divinity to man, it would be much more wrong that he should be so revealed by the whole. Take a parallel case. A man's personality actuates and quickens his whole body. If anyone said it was unsuitable for the man's power to be in the toe, he would be thought silly, because while granting that a man penetrates and actuates the whole of his body, he denied his presence in the part. 
Similarly, no one who admits the presence of the Word of God in the universe as a whole should think it unsuitable for a single human body to be by him actuated and enlightened. But it is, perhaps, because humanity is a thing created and brought into being out of non-existence that they regard as unfitting the manifestation of the Savior in our nature. If so, it is high time that they spurned him from creation too, for it too has been brought out of non-being into being by the word. But if, on the other hand, although creation is a thing that has been made, it is not unsuitable for the word to be present in it, then neither is it unsuitable for him to be in man." Man is a part of the creation, and as I said before, and the reasoning which applies to one applies to the other. All things derive from the word their light and movement and life. As the Gentile authors themselves say, in him we live and move and have our being. Very well then, that being so, it is by no means unbecoming that the word should dwell in man. So if, as we say, the word has used that in which he is as the means of his self-manifestation, what is there ridiculous in that? He could not have used it had he not been present in it. But we have already admitted that he is present both in the whole and in its parts. What, then, is there incredible in his manifesting himself through that in which he is? By his own power, he enters completely into each and all and orders them throughout ungrudgingly. And, had he so willed, he could have revealed himself and his Father by means of sun or moon or sky or earth or fire or water. Had he done so, no one could rightly have accused him of acting unbecomingly. For he sustains in one whole all things at once, being present and invisibly revealed not only in the whole, but also in each particular part. This being so, and since moreover, he is willed to reveal himself through men who are part of the whole, there can be nothing ridiculous in his using a human body to manifest the truth and knowledge of the Father. Does not the mind of man pervade his entire being? and yet find expression through one part only, namely the tongue? Does anybody say on that account that the mind has degraded itself? Of course not. Very well then, no more is it degrading for the Word who pervades all things to have appeared in a human body. For as I said before, if it were unfitting for him thus to indwell the part, it would be equally so for him to exist within the whole. Some may then ask, why did he not manifest himself by means of other and nobler parts of creation and use some nobler instrument, such as sun or moon or stars or fire or air, instead of mere man? The answer is this, the Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal and to teach suffering men. For one who wanted to make a display, the thing would have been just to appear and dazzle the beholders. But for him who came to heal and to teach, the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him, and to be manifested according as they could bear it. 
not vitiating the value of the divine appearing by exceeding their capacity to receive it. Moreover, nothing in creation had erred from the path of God's purpose for it, save only man. Sun, moon, heaven, stars, water, air, none of these had swerved from their order, but knowing the word as their maker and their king remained as they were made. Men alone, having rejected what is good, have invented nothings instead of the truth and have ascribed the honor due to God and the knowledge concerning him to demons and men in the form of stones. Obviously, the divine goodness could not overlook so grave a matter as this. But men could not recognize him as ordering and ruling creation as a whole. So what does he do? He takes to himself for instrument a part of the whole, namely a human body, and enters into that. Thus he ensures that men should recognize him in the part who could not do so in the whole, and that those who could not lift their eyes to his unseen power might recognize and behold him in the likeness of themselves. For being men, they would naturally learn to know his father more quickly and directly by means of a body that corresponded to their own and by the divine works done through it. For by comparing his works with their own, they would judge his to be not human, but divine. And if, as they say, it were unsuitable for the word to reveal himself through bodily acts, it would be equally so for him to do so through the works of the universe. His being in creation does not mean that he shares its nature. On the contrary, all created things partake of his power. Similarly, though he used the body as his instrument, he shared nothing of its defect, but rather sanctified it by his indwelling. Does not even Plato, of whom the Greeks think so much, Say that the author of the universe, seeing it storm-tossed and in danger of sinking into the state of dissolution, takes his seat at the helm of the life force of the universe and comes to the rescue and puts everything right. What then is there incredible in our saying that mankind having gone astray, the word descended upon it and was manifest as man, so that by his intrinsic goodness and his steersmanship, he might save it from the storm. It may be, however, that though shamed into agreeing that this objection is void, the Greeks will want to raise another. They will say that if God wanted to instruct and save mankind, he might have done so not by his words assumption of a body, but even as he at first created them, by the mere signification of his will. The reasonable reply to that is that the circumstances in the two cases are quite different. In the beginning, nothing has yet existed at all. All that was needed, therefore, in order to bring all things into being was that his will to do so should be signified. But once man was in existence and things that were, not things that were not, demanded to be healed, it followed as a matter of course that the healer and savior should align himself with those things that existed already in order to heal the existing evil. 
For that reason, therefore, he was made man and used the body as his human instrument. If this were not the fitting way and he willed to use an instrument at all, how otherwise was the word to come? And whence could he take his instrument, save from among those already in existence and needing his Godhead through one like themselves? It was not things non-existent that needed salvation, for which a bare creative word might have sufficed, but man, man already in existence and already in process of corruption and ruin. It was natural and right, therefore, for the word to use a human instrument and by that means unfold himself to all. You must know, moreover, that the corruption which had set in was not external to the body, but established within it. The need, therefore, was that life should cleave to it in corruption's place, so that just as death was brought into being in the body, life also might be engendered in it. If death had been exterior to the body, life might fittingly have been the same. But if death was within the body, woven into its very substance and dominating it as though completely one with it, the need was for life to be woven into it instead, so that the body, by thus enduing itself with life, might cast corruption off. Suppose the word had come outside the body instead of in it. He would, of course, have defeated death because death is powerless against the life. But the corruption inherent in the body would have remained in it nonetheless. Naturally, therefore, the Savior assumed a body for himself in order that the body, being interwoven as it were with life, should no longer remain a mortal thing in thrall to death but as endued with immortality and risen from death, should thenceforth remain immortal. For once having put on corruption, it could not rise unless it put on life instead. And besides this, death of its very nature could not appear otherwise than in a body. Therefore, he put on a body so that in the body he might find death and blot it out. And indeed, how could the Lord have been proved to be the life at all had he not endued with life that which was subject to death? Take an illustration. Stubble is a substance naturally destructible by fire, and it still remains stubble. Fearing the menace of fire, which has the natural property of consuming it, even if fire is kept away from it so that it is not actually burnt. But suppose that, instead of merely keeping the fire from it, somebody soaks the stubble with a quantity of asbestos, the substance which is said to be the antidote to fire. Then the stubble no longer fears the fire, because it has put on that which fire cannot touch, and therefore it is safe. It is just the same with regard to the body and death. Had death been kept from it by a mere command, it would still have remained mortal and corruptible, according to its nature. To prevent this, it put on the incorporeal word of God. 
and therefore fears neither death nor corruption anymore. For it is clad with life as with a garment, and in it corruption is clean done away. The word of God thus acted consistently in assuming a body and using a human instrument to vitalize the body. He was consistent in working through man to reveal himself everywhere, as well as through the other parts of his creation, so that nothing was left void of his divinity and knowledge. For I take up now the point I made before, namely that the Savior did this in order that he might fill all things everywhere with the knowledge of himself, just as they are already filled with his presence, even as the divine scripture says, The whole universe was filled with the knowledge of the Lord. If a man looks up to heaven, he sees there his ordering. But if he cannot look so high as heaven, but only so far as men, through his works he sees his power, incomparable with human might, and learns from them that he alone among men is God the Word. Or if a man has gone astray among demons and is in fear of them, he may see this man drive them out and judge therefrom that he is indeed their master. Again, if a man has been immersed in the element of water and thinks that it is God, as indeed the Egyptians do worship water, he may see its very nature changed by him and learn that the Lord is creator of all. And if a man has gone down even to Hades and stands awestruck before the heroes who have descended thither, regarding them as gods, still he may see the fact of Christ's resurrection and his victory over death and reason from it that of all these, he alone is very Lord and God." For the Lord touched all parts of creation and freed and undeceived them from every deceit. As St. Paul says, having put off from himself the principalities and the powers, he triumphed on the cross so that no one could possibly be any longer deceived, but everywhere might find the very word of God. For thus man, enclosed on every side by the works of creation and everywhere, in heaven, in Hades, in men, and on the earth, beholding the unfolded Godhead of the Word, is no longer deceived concerning God, but worships Christ alone, and through Him rightly knows the Father. On these grounds, then, of reason and of principle, we will fairly silence the Gentiles in their turn. But if they think these arguments insufficient to confute them, we will go on in the next chapter to prove our point from facts. 